Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. Welcome to the show today. Have an interesting uh, conversation today planned with Chris Cavallo in the sunny state of Florida, which I just got back from. My son had a golf tournament down there, Chris, and I, I flew out of um, uh, Palm Beach International Airport, and we were up in Stewart, Florida, playing nice. in a college, college golf tournament, and he actually had his best tournament in college so far. But, um, yeah, surprisingly, the second day it was chilly and cold, and I was dressed like I was living back in Iowa. So, uh, But anyway, welcome to the show, and um, I'm very excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I am too. I really am. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about. I mean, and for those people that follow the Living Unattered story, uh, they, they're very familiar with my story. And uh, every so often I meet somebody that, that I feel has um, you know, a very similar type story. And yours is probably, out of all the stories I met, the most similar. Um, I do have a great friendship with Steve Grant. He lost his only two sons to overdose deaths um, about 20 years ago, which is amazing because nobody... It, was, it wasn't a household name like it is now. Fentanyl, everyone knows about fentanyl. Back, back in the day, 20 years ago, overdoses, you know, no one really knew anyone. But now there's so many of us out there. And, um, you know, now I meet you uh, about a month ago. And um, we're working on having Florida be a really key stop in our tour coming up in May. But you've been through some adversity. And just like Steve, you've done some heroic things, Chris. But before we get to talking about your story, maybe... Um, Tell us a little bit about you, about uh, what you're doing right now with your foundation and, and maybe uh, anything else you want to talk about before we start getting real specific in your situation. Okay. So I'm um, 70, going to be 71 in next month. I'm from uh, Long Island originally. Um, and I want to state up front that I have somewhat of a voice disability. I have something called dysphonia, which is a neurological disorder which has like spastic uh, vocal cords. So sometimes it, it makes me strain my voice. So I sound very hoarse all the time, which my grandchildren are always razzing me about, <laughs> uh, making me sound like I'm 20 years older than I already am. But um, so I come from uh, Northeast Long Island specifically, and I grew up in a uh, middle-class family um, and uh, I, I think the, the stage was set um, right after I lost my mother at 14, and that was a devastating blow. And I found within a few months of that, um, I started drinking. Hmm. And um, within two years, I was shooting crystal meth. So there I was at 16, uh, shooting crystal meth, I was this, uh, I was an, an athlete, um, and uh, so, the, you know, the, the rest is just a monologue of what addiction, you know, faces with most of us. Um, but to, to fast track a little in and out of institutions, detoxes for about four years, um, and back in, in the day, in the 70s, they, they didn't know how to treat addicts. They knew how to treat heroin addicts, right. but they didn't correlate if you were on cocaine. Uh, I mean, alcohol has always been relative to alcoholism, but cocaine, crystal meth, opioids, any of those things, they didn't, it was a mental, you know, uh, issue. 
Right. Uh, and they didn't know how to, to treat it, obviously. But um, I had gotten into very serious trouble with the law, um, and I ended up uh, moving down to, to South Florida to get away from New York, and I met my, uh, my wife-to-be, Robin, and within 24 hours of meeting her, she was living with another guy. I was staying with a, a potential girlfriend, um, and she and I were doing speed 24 hours after meeting each other at a dinner party, complete strangers. Wow. So that attraction, not just physical, it's like right. we... we <laughs> so, um, so that continued for several years. We moved back to New York. Um, she got in trouble with the law. Um, and it was just nonstop using. Um, always with, with alcohol being the most prevalent drug in our, in our cocktail. Right. But it was the cocaine and the crystal meth uh, and the pain pills that brought us to our knees. So um, Robin um, got pregnant um, with, our, with our twin daughters, Stephanie and Christina. Um, and we were using all throughout her pregnancy, not giving any thought to something could, could go wrong. And um, so Robin delivered the twins. Everything on the surface seemed okay. The only thing that wasn't okay is that she and I were full-blown addicts. Um, we would drop the kids off um, to the babysitter and say we'd be back in two hours and not go back for days at a time. Wow. Thank God Robin's mother happened to live in the area that we were in, and she basically uh, compensated for our lack of, of parentship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, what really confused our situation and why we couldn't come to terms with being addicts is that I was very, very successful in sales. I've been in the security and investigation industry for 40 plus years. Um, and so there I was, there we were with a several hundred dollar a day drug habits, but still performing at a very high level um, until the point where I had lost almost 50 pounds. Um, my wife, Robin, used to call me the Biafra baby. Um, and it was clear that I was, I was dying a slow death. And she could right. see it in me, although we couldn't see it in her. Fortunately, someone at work had smelt alcohol on her several times and basically said, listen, <laughs> you can't do this, but here's someone who can help you. And that was, uh, that was a free ticket for the both of us. Uh, we both went into treatment. This was July of 1984. What type of treatment, um, Chris? We went into drug treatment. Then okay. Back then and up until probably a year or two ago, it's a 28-day program yeah. is right. what was really prevalent back in the, in the 80s. Um, so, um, so we embraced uh, the 12-step fellowship. We uh, were attracted to Narcotics Anonymous. And we were fully engaged. Um, we 
We worked the 12 steps diligently. We became very involved in service and helping others. And that was really, I think, at the core for Robin and I was service and, and helping others, going into prisons, meetings, um, public information, things of that nature. So things went, went very well for a very long time. And we lived uh, a great life. The girls grew up uh, having horses, living near a ranch. Davy is a Western community. Um, so it's not unusual to see a, a horse being tied to a local uh, retail store in town. Uh, not so much in today, but back in the days it was when the town had not you know, blossomed as such. Um, so um, Robin ended up having hemorrhoid surgery. Um, this was in her 17th year, our 17th year of recovery. And the doctor fully disclosed, doctor knew that, we, that she was an addict. And the doctor, the pain was horrific. You could see she was in terrible pain. And the doctor prescribed Percocet, an, an opioid. Sure. Yeah. And Jeff, that one pill, I could see it like it was a light switch. Changed her in one day. And this was um, in the 80s, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is no, this is no, excuse me. This is uh, no, this is late 1990, 2000. Let's see, oh, it's in okay, two, okay, she died in 2001. Gotcha. So, um, so she was so ashamed and embarrassed about relapsing, and this is a big part of the disease is the shame, the yeah, guilt, right? You don't. Oh, you, you don't want to come out. You don't want to talk to others. It's a horrible feeling. I have felt those feelings. And so Robin decides at a suggestion of a friend that she's going to go to a clinic in St. Kitt that was sponsored by the University of Miami. Uh, and they were treating addicts with a drug called Ibogaine. Hmm. Ibogaine is now being readily used throughout Europe, Mexico. Uh, it's the new miracle drug. Um, and unfortunately with Robin, it did not work. It was the, she was there the week of 9-11 and she called me up hysterical. Um, she says, please, you have to get me out of here. There was no flights in and out of anywhere at, during that two or three day period, week period, whatever it was. Um, and Robin and I uh, had been separated because mm -hmm. I think I, I told you previously um, that I just could not be around her using. I would find bags yeah. of worker sets. Yeah. This had been going on for months before she finally took that. the step, okay, yeah. going to get treatment. So, um, so she goes there, it doesn't work out. She comes back. I had a condominium, she had a condominium, which was literally a, a tennis ball uh, away from each other. Right. And while she was at this therapeutic treatment facility, she meets a, which we thought was a licensed therapist, and he's wanting to come back to the States. And he said, listen, can you put me up for a few days until I can get myself settled? He says to her, there was no romantic involvement um, I mean, we looked into it after what happened with Robin took place. 
And um, he said to her, listen, I know, uh, and, and I'm repeating the conversation that he subsequently has told the police and everyone else, he offered to give her the same sensation, the same sure. thing that the other game, but he was going to do it with something differently. Right. So I had spoken to her uh, the night before. We told each other, you know, we loved each other. Um, and the next day I get a phone call from uh, the Aventura police. Your wife's been in an accident. They wouldn't go into details. So what happened was, um, is that he, who was an unlicensed therapist, gives her ecstasy. And she ended up having a massive stroke. Uh, and two days later, I had to make the choice of taking her off uh, the machines. She was completely brain dead. Um, had a, my daughter was, both my girls were in Tampa going to the University of South Florida at the time. Um, so it was, it was nonsensical. I couldn't, I, I mean, it just didn't make sense to me that, that something like this could happen. Yeah, um, actually since being you know, clean for so long, you know, and being in recovery for so long and then having a physician who you, who you trust that, that industry to know, kind of know better. Um, it seems to me that, uh, that I would be just as surprised as well. Um, yeah. and again, that's a heart wrenching story because most stories that involve the, the death of someone, uh, aren't, aren't similar to what your story is. It's somebody doing really well and then something happened to them and through the trust of a physician is given something that triggered or set off the cause of events that happened to her, to her death. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, um, it's so unfortunate cause it didn't have, you know, it didn't have to happen. You know, if there was another diagnosis, another, um, way that that physician could have treated what she was going through, uh, you know, and then, and then that obviously opens the door to, to your daughter, in regards to her grief and then what eventually happened to her. So um, would you mind sharing kind of um, how then yeah. that, how that went uh, with Stephanie? Yeah. So um, what was interesting when Robin was on life support and we put out um, a message, it was like, I, I only made two or three phone calls. When you would step off the elevator in the ICU unit she was on, there was hundreds of people, hundreds of people that she in some way somehow affected, meant sure. something to. Um, and that's the thing about those 12-step fellowships that mm. I truly you know, believe in. The, the fellowship um, is there. Right. Anyway, so, um, so my, my Christina... Uh, wanted to come home. She was going to school at UCF. I said, no, mom would want you to finish. I want you to finish school. And Stephanie was living with me. And Stephanie almost immediately um, started using. Hmm. Um, and was she using it all? Was she using anything prior to this? I think it's interesting, Jeff, because Stephanie was always around using but she was the one that would drive people. She was the one that would help people. She's the one that would bring, like, a real caregiver. But was she right. using? No. So, and her using went from nothing, 
she wasn't a drinker, didn't smoke pot, so she was immediately freebasing crack cocaine. Gee, and wow. the next 18 years, 19 years, Stephanie was in and out of detox, in and out of jails, in and out of treatment centers. There was very few times um, where she would be able to put together a few months of recovery. There was one period where um, Chrissy was working at a treatment. My, Chrissy, my remaining daughter, um, has been heavily involved in the treatment uh, industry for many years now because of the family dynamics. And she had Stephanie come to work where she was. And Stephanie, um, her responsibility was to, uh, sh uh, to drive people back and forth from where they were living to the treatment center. She was like the shuttle. She would pick up people that were coming in for treatment at the mm -hmm. airport. Well, that ended up catching up to her because one day after being clean for a year and doing very well and going to meetings and working the steps and having a sponsor, she goes to pick someone up in Overtown, which is a very bad area in South Florida. It's a drug haven. And by the time she got the person back to where she was supposed to bring into treatment, they were both in the car using. Mm -hmm. And of course that, that, you know, set off, what she was most accustomed to, which was using. Right, um, right. She was more comfortable using than she was not using. Um, okay. And it's almost like you, you get more familiar uh, with being uncomfortable um, than comfortable. Um, and there was just no stopping her. And we tried so many times. I tried tough love. I tried, yeah, tried over love. Um, yeah. Uh, my Christina says we're a very codependent family, and uh, and I um, definitely, uh, you know, I would I would buy them. At one point, Robin and I had a very very successful investigative agency. We sold the business, and never ever having to work again. And it was, and a year later, Robin is dead after us working so many years together. Sure. Yeah, and. All of those millions of dollars were gone within three years, okay? Yeah. Um, it was like, in my mind, it was blood money. I didn't want to have that money that she and I had worked for and was, was gone. Vehicles, yeah. homes, what have you. Right. And then you get to 2006 to 2008 and the country's upside down. It was a disaster. But back to Stephanie. Um, so Stephanie... Uh, had a uh, a son, Christopher, my grandson, and a daughter, Mia. And Stephanie, um, with Christopher, ended up losing the custody to uh, the, the father uh, of Stephanie. Um, and to understand the dynamics, the father uh, was a drug dealer, always has been a drug dealer, but somehow, because he was biologically the next in line, he got custody of Stephanie's son. Um, the week that Stephanie died, she had just gotten back the rights to have visitation and we would have Christopher back in her life. And she said to her sister, I've done my job. 
this is this was what all I wanted to do was get her back. Well, that week I was leaving on a, on a cruise, um, and it was really the first time Stephanie and I had been away for any period of time um, since Robin had died, um, and I felt very very uncomfortable. And although she was clean, I was scared for some reason. I, I bet, went and yeah. I put a tracker under her car because oh, wow. I wanted to be able to see from the Atlantic Ocean where she was. And if I saw that she was in a bad place, I could go. So um, I called Chrissy. I said, listen, she's up to no good. You know, this is a problem. Um, and the night before she died, she had texted me and she says, I don't, Dad. And I didn't get the text until the next morning. Dad, I don't want to live anymore. I can't take the pain anymore. Um, and... The next day, she was found dead in a hotel on a bathroom floor, um, less than five miles from our home. Um, so when I called Christina, because I couldn't get a hold of Stephanie, and I started panicking after seeing those messages, and I finally got Christina, I said, Chrissy, tell me, tell me. And Chrissy says, Dad, what do you want me to tell you? You know, you know. And she was dead. And um, he had to go identify her laying there, you know, half naked, laying on a bathroom floor yeah. with yeah. needles, and, you know, hanging out of her arm. It was just horrible, horrible. And so, um, you know, so we had the, you know, the burial, the ceremony, a lot of people came. But Chrissy said to me, we have got to be engaged. We have got to do mm -hmm. something. We can't do this. We've done nothing with the foundation. We need to oh, so make it happen now. So the we foundation need... was really there was, during this there. time. It was lingering, Jeff. But it you just... weren't really. And that's the Robin Foundation for those people that haven't uh, caught on yet. But And obviously Robin named after uh, your wife. But um so the foundation was started soon after Robin's passing or? Yeah. Started in 2003, soon oh, after. So two years, okay. And I supported the foundation knowing sure. nothing about how to manage a foundation. Right, right. Unlike today. So it just sort of sat there lingering. Yeah. Um, get calls. We would refer people to our resources. We have a very good network of yeah recovery people. So when we would get those calls, it's not that we took money in, we would refer people to our, our resources. So that was the amount of the foundation at that time. Um, so um, Chrissy said to me two things, that and we've got to do a documentary about what our family, generational addiction, our family going back four generations has been drinking and drugging and there's like no end to it in sight. And now, of course, we're concerned of what our grandkids, right. you know, Stephanie, especially Stephanie's son, Christopher, and especially Mia. Um, and because we see signs, we see those signs. Can um, I can I jump in and just for a second here, take a pause and kind of unpack everything that you talked about? Because I think it's important yeah. for our our listeners to understand the dynamics of, of what you just went through because I went through a similar type thing. All that was reverse order. We lost the son, then my wife. You lost right. your wife, then a daughter. But right. I think I think the, the thread that I see and and you can 
let me know what your thoughts are on this is, you know, Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's a addiction expert, world renowned, says that the all addiction stems from childhood trauma. That's what he believes. That's what he believes. Um, other people believe different things for addiction. But look at your situation, what you went through at 14 when your mom passed and what you immediately went to is you went to drugs and alcohol and you started your journey with addiction at that time at 14, you said 14 to 16. And then you take Stephanie when her mom passes away. She, she used the same, um, the, the same outcome from a similar result in, in that her mom had died. So she, she went then at that point to drugs and alcohol. But that's because you alluded to she was pretty clean before that. So I guess where I see a similar fabric in my story is when our son died, my wife at the time went to alcohol. And, and I think what's happening here, Chris, is where I think you and I having these conversations is is almost less about addiction, but how be, people are dealing with grief and trauma. And mm. that's really probably what people are missing in society. And we keep building rehab facilities. We keep throwing drugs at people. We, you know, buprenorphine and methadone and all these, all these opioids we're using to fight opioids. And it's like, we're just, I call it whack-a-moles. Like we just keep this mole keep popping up. We keep hitting the mole or my other analogy is, or metaphor would be putting out a forest fire with thimbles. It's like, I think there's something in here, these two stories, and you and I are just two stories. I mean, this is replicated by thousands and thousands of just Americans only, not counting the world, in the people's inability to deal with grief and trauma. And, and the first thing that people do is they go to pain-numbing resources like alcohol, drugs, you know, marijuana, whatever it may be. And I think, I think there's something there to be said about the work that you and I are doing. And, and I'm... I'm by no means an expert. Um, I'm, I'm only five years into this journey. My our son died in 16 and then my wife this last year. So I'm kind of new to this game, I guess you call it. But what I'm learning very quickly is a lot of the problems stem from people's inability to deal with life when it happens in, in their unpreparedness in how to deal with these things. And I think as a society, we need to arm our children. So you talked about generational addiction. Well, Okay, that's I think that's half the story. But the other half would be, let's talk to these kids before they even know what generational addiction is. I mean, once you start letting kids know, hey, grandpa was an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, thus you'll be an alcoholic. I mean, I think we need to get to kids before that conversation's even had and say, you know what? Um, there are ways you can deal with life when it comes at you because it's not good. It's, it's very difficult. It's challenging. Yet it's, it can be beautiful. You know, it is what you make of it. And... I think as a society where I'm going with this, Chris, is we are woefully unprepared to deal with death. I mean, we just, we, we know what's happening to all of us. We, we know there's a certainty, 100%, that even you and I, believe it or not, are going to die at some point. But the people around us are just ill-prepared to deal with that. And especially when it's something like a suicide or an accidental overdose, um, it's still death. It doesn't make it any less hurtful. Uh, but I just thought, I want to know what your thoughts are on that, is that, how do we really affect change going forward with the, the next generation, the next alcoholics, the next um, addicts, the next kids that are committing suicide when they're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12? How do we set them up to prepare them for really how unfair life can be? Right. Well, uh, not to digress, but you uh, said about childhood trauma and whether mm -hmm. I intentionally or unintentionally 
did not disclose to you is that when my, my parents had been divorced and when my mother got sick and they knew that my, and I was living with my mother and my brother, who was, uh, Stephen was seven years older, um, my father had remarried and they didn't want me living with them. So they would send me to a school. The first okay. school I went to, I was molested, I was raped, I was physically abused repeatedly, repeatedly. And how, old I could, you? how old were you, Chris? Fourteen. It was when okay. my when my right died, when your mom I, died. I could not say those words until five years into my recovery. I finally told my father, and he was like, you know, he didn't. He was speechless. He didn't know why didn't you tell me? How could I? How would right. a fourteen-year-old? Right. I lost my mother, and the next right. thing that happens to me is that I'm taken over by a kid who's three times the size repeatedly. So I felt yeah. that I need to share with you based well, on appreciate, what- I appreciate you telling that story. I, I, my heart goes out to you. One of my fears, because you also hear, and, and you hit it right on the head, Jeff, and you said, just because there's three generation alcoholic doesn't mean the next generation has to follow suit. And you're, right. you're, you're spot on. By the same token, one, you know, of course, Robin knew of my situation. I said, listen, if, if I am ever around the girls and something doesn't look right, you know, you have got to say something. But I consciously knew it was so programmed in my head that I was not going to be repeating that, which, which I have not, of course, mm -hmm. thank God. But, mm -hmm. And she had also come from an abusive family with her stepfather. Hmm. So... Um, the, you're right. Trauma, it, it, it's anyway. Well, so, I mean, you are you, obviously you're not the first person to. I've had three or four hour long podcast shows with people. Two have been female, one have been male. Um, uh, Dr. Wayne Coffey in Baltimore, Maryland, has a foundation called No More Stolen Childhoods. And I read his book and he came out late in his I think in his 50s or 40s. And he had been molested by, I think it was a cousin. I'll have, have to refresh my memory. He shares this publicly. So, um, but anyway, uh, at the trial, his own mom sat behind the cousin because she was in such denial that this actually happened, that she defended not even her own child because there's no way that he sexually molested my son. And so parents are culpable in this as well because their inability to grasp sometimes how evil humans can be and they're just simply in denial and no, I'm, I, my heart aches for you man and what you're doing is just absolutely heroic and I know you don't want to be labeled a superhero Chris but I tell you I, I tell you the real people in our society that need to be anointed as superheroes are people like you and Wayne Coffey and Steve Grant and the people that have uh, Jennifer Tracy and um, Ann Moss Rogers and all these people I've met uh, the last year that have dealt with suicides of kids and, and molestations and, and, and rapes. And, and, but, but then again, they've decided, Hey, you know what? This is part of my story. I can't unwind my story, but I can certainly begin over. Right. You know, I can start my story today. Right. You know, and that's yeah. the hardest thing in trauma and grief is to say, you know what? I, my wife died. I don't have to be captured by all those memories, the good and bad, but I can start my life over today. And right. 
it's hard to do. It takes a lot of practice. I'm, I'm sure you struggle daily. I do as well. And the fact that two grown men can sit here and share vulnerability stories in, in 30 minutes is proof that we all can do this, you know, right. and it's important to do it. I feel better talking to you. I'm sure you feel better. People are going to watch this, Chris and go, man, man, these guys, just these two guys have lost four people. You know, four people. It's a stat. It is. It is. I was on the airplane flying back, and this lady is sitting across the aisle with me, and we just started our conversation. Our masks were on. It was kind of hard to hear each other. And I immediately kind of go, I call it my living undeterred mode with my boys. That's when I kind of put on my hat where I go into grieving dad, grieving, you know, husband, all this stuff. And, boy, it wasn't within five minutes I could see the tears with her mask right here. I could see the tears in her eyes. And it hit me. Here's another example where I opened the door to vulnerability and I could see it touching somebody. You know, I wasn't telling some motivational, you know, resilient story. I was just talking in an intimate human level. And this was all in five minutes. And then she started telling me about all the stuff that happened to her, you know. And then on an airplane, obviously, the people around you can kind of hear. And I could see people now starting to really engage. And I'm thinking... This is the beauty of storytelling. This is the beauty of vulnerability. And what you're doing has, you know, an essence of that. And that's why I applaud you for what you're doing and your, and your daughter as well. And, and I'm planning on, I look forward to meeting you when we go on the tour uh, in a Absolutely. few months. You know, so, um, so as, as you know, and, and when Chrissy said to me, we needed to do something. And Stephanie, which I did not mentioned um she thought she was buying heroin jeff and mm. there ended up being any heroin in the package it was fentanyl and oh. morphine so i say to myself how what sense does this make and one of the things you always hear is why are the drug dealers killing off their clients their, their clients <laughs> yeah it makes no business sense at all right come on yeah. um right. and so when the thing with uh, Stephanie was homeless under a bridge at one point here in, in Davie, just three miles from my home, and one day she had overdosed and the EMS came and they, they gave her Narcan and it turned her around. Unfortunately, um, you know, with what she had ingested that day, there wasn't a possibility when you know that a fingertip of Narcan is enough to, yeah. to kill anyone, you know. So I said, well, this is something we can do right now. We can get Narcan out to different organizations, community. We can do this. Is this the answer? No. No, but right. God only knows we need to try to slow these numbers down because it is out of control. <laughs> That's a perfect segue because now we're, this is going fast. We're 35 minutes into the show. I mean, I really appreciate setting up kind of the rest of the show that I want to talk about because sure. I do have my... Narcan right here, and I've got my opioid overdose kit. Uh, right. I'm on the board of uh, I'm on the board of the Area Substance Abuse Council here in Cedar Rapids, so we we do this. You got yours too. Yep. <laughs> I can say I have not had a chance to use it, and I hope I never do. But I'm ready if I do. Um, but let me ask you about harm reduction and um, uh, uh, medicine assisted treatment (MAT) programs. I, there's so much out there, and be honest with you, for people listening to this, they probably don't know what either one of those are. 
So right. why don't you first, why don't you just for the layperson explain um, what, what, what is harm reduction philosophically and then maybe what your thoughts are. And then also with the MATs, with med medicine assisted treatment, kind of what your thoughts are on that because there's so much uh, polarization. On, I mean, talk right. about something that, that draws right down the middle and you get people on both sides of the fence. Right. And, and we, we may find that we may disagree on this point, which is, is fine. My daughter, mm -hmm. Christina, is my example of MAT and harm reduction. She has started a telehealth business um, distributing Suboxone, buprenorphine. And she was in the treatment business for many years and saw that it was going nowhere. Nothing was happening. It was recycling. Right. Um, and especially regular white collar office workers did not want to either take off the time to go into a detox, too embarrassed to admit it, right. where right. by taking the buprenorphine suboxone, they could literally be detoxed in, in 24 hours. Yes, they're now on a different drug. Okay. So let's explain, Chris, what, what you've just said, because most people, I mean, just, just a year ago, I didn't, I didn't know what you just said. Um, right. but explain kind of, my, my thoughts are, especially um, um, uh, buprenorphine would be like a bridge between being clean and being high. And it, it provides, it's an opioid, fighting an opioid, but it's kind of a watered down opioid. You don't get the high effect, but it's still addictive. I mean, you're still considered yeah. an opioid. So maybe clarify that a little bit for people just in layman's terms some of this terminology we use i think we lose people sometimes when we try to explain these things well i, I don't know that i could explain it any any better than that <laughs> except that um i've seen too many people that could have either taken methadone which i am not a methadone uh proponent because i've seen too many people take methadone and go out and sell it so they go that's into the stronger though, right? That's stronger than buprenorphine. See, right. you know, to me, it's like uh, legal heroin. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what it seems. And now there'll right. be people program will say, "Well, how could you say that? Methadone saved my life," and that very well may be the case. Sure. Okay. Yep, that's what you hear in this whole thing. There's always a situation where somebody thinks their life was saved on something. I I think. Um, when we talk about harm reduction, even taking it a, a step further, when you talk about needle exchange, when I first yeah. heard that, I said, this doesn't make any sense. But then again, would I rather have someone come in and, and give them, knowing that they're going to, you know, they're going to be shooting something up regardless, and instead of them passing this needle around and giving everyone HIV or, or hep C, which I had for 30 years, okay, because of being in shooting galleries, what have you, would it be better if have a needle exchange? That's harm reduction. So yeah, I think if we could have, and again, I, it's funny, Jeff, because I'm in the middle of writing, I'm calling it my white paper, which is, you really said something to me that said something, you, we got to be thinking out of the box, we got to do things that we haven't been done before and have, because this is a whole different animal, this pandemic. This Nothing's is something working. we yeah. haven't seen, okay? Right. So you better be thinking out of the box, you know? Um, so again, getting back to harm reduction, if there's a way that we can lessen, you know, uh, the effects of, of the drugs that people are taking 
and it being a bridge to recovery, right. I'm for it. I'm you for know, it. When I first heard of harm reduction, I, I didn't really know what it meant too much. So the way I explain it to people is it's a compassionate, non-judgmental way to get people to another day. And that no, tomorrow could be the day that, that Chris Cavallo decides enough is enough. I'm never going to do drugs again. It could be the day after tomorrow. It could be, it could be Saturday. But the fact that we're losing so many people now and the numbers aren't going in any direction resembling it getting better. It's, 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 it's just the velocity of this. I mean, when my son died, there was 56,000 overdoses. Last year, there was 100,000. So in, in five years, it's doubled. So it's like in five more years, are we going to be at 200,000 or 300,000? Well, I think, I think it's reasonable to expect that unless something changes. Well, what's something changing? Well, things like harm reduction where... We're, we're having a compassionate look at this. We're, as, as, as I've heard so eloquently said by so many people, we're meeting the addict where they're at. We're meeting the person that's struggling where they are at, which literally means they're high right now. They're depressed. They're not optimistic on their life. They need to get, it, they need to, get to 9 o'clock tonight, and then they need to sleep well, hopefully, and get to the next day. Harm reduction is, to me, kind of how I explain that to people. Now, is it fentanyl test strips? Is it needle exchanges? You know, is it buprenorphine? Uh, I, I don't know. But if we can get somebody that could die today one more day to live, I guarantee you if we get 1,000 people to live one more day, you're going to have some of them that will live another 20 years. You, you, may lose 99, you may lose 99% of them, but maybe that one that lives 20 years is your child. And right. isn't it worth the fight? Isn't it worth the fight? So I get a little irritated watching these Facebook groups just argue adamantly that I'm 100% against fentanyl test strips. Well, unless it's your son or daughter that's saved, then you're right. all for it. Or I'm 100% against, look at San Francisco. It's just this you know, train wreck of people laying around needles. Well, unless, unless your son or daughter's the one saved on a needle exchange. You know, until, and I got this saying that I love and it's on the back of my t-shirts. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. You got to say that a few times to really resonate it. And what that simply means is no one gives a shit about any of this stuff until it hits home, you know? Right. And then right. all of a sudden, we're all of a sudden, we're all overly passionate about something. So that's, that's my little soapbox. Yeah, I love it. I, I totally am in agreement. And, and but I'm very naive on these things, Chris. I don't know a lot about needle exchanges. I've, I've never done drugs. I've right. never, I've never smoked pot. I've never done drugs. I've never been high in my life. I've always felt I had all that in me already. I felt I was always a, I'm an attention deficit person. I'm, I'm hyper. I'm intense. I thought drugs would just get in the way of that. And I was fortunate at a young age to never do drugs. Now I was a full blown alcoholic for, from probably 18 to when I quit at 51 years old. I mean, very functional like you. I could work. I was doing very well fun financially and successfully. Marriage was strong. Um, but there were cracks forming. And all that kind of fell when my son died. All of a sudden, all those problems, that false foundation I'd built my life on, got exposed. And I crashed for a year and thought I was going to die. And then I finally pulled myself out of it. So, yeah, I'm just all for learning more about these topics. I'm, I'm, You've forgotten more than I'll ever know on these topics. Trust me. Um, like I said, I don't have any experience on drugs other than I lost a child to one. This tour that you're undertaking, Jeff, I, I said to uh, Lisa Keeler at the Greater Fort Lauderdale uh, Alliance, is so needed 
it's it's going to bring conversation out where it needs to be in the general mm -hmm. public, not right. on as you FaceTime or here out in the general public where the media is involved right. because the kids are the ones that we have to be worried about right, now. Right, you know? right, right. Um, and if we don't get them in the conversation, we're gonna. This is gonna be a losing battle. You know, we have to get them involved. We have to get their parents involved, the families involved. Whether their drugs or addiction or alcoholism has even affected them, I assure you, they've got someone. Oh in, yeah. In, you know, in their ge geography that has been affected. And you bring up the tour because I get people chirping in my ear about, well, you should do this, you should do that. And, and I decided consciously early on that I was going to get away from an opioid awareness tour. That was my initial idea. And now it's a mental health initiative because really everything we're talking about is mental health. And yeah. um, mental health is depression. Mental health is suicidal ideation. Mental health is sex abuse, um, you know, trauma recovery from, from sex abuse. Mental health is everything. It's, you know, I don't think there's a human that's ever lived that hasn't struggled with at some capacity, at some level, mental health. Uh, I'm full-blown living proof that I've had my battles, and you are as well. But we're both here. Um, we're not just surviving. We're thriving. Um, I feel like I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life right now. Uh, and I feel like each day gets a little bit incrementally better. One step back, two step forward, you know. Um, as my good friend Mike Pierce, he goes by the name Antarctic Mike on social media, but he talks about penguin steps. He was one of the first humans to run or Americans to run a marathon on the glaciers of Antarctica. Wow. And his metaphor he uses in life is penguin steps. And we just love that. So we've embraced this penguin steps methodology or, or ideology on our tours at each day, each, each stop we make, each person I talk to, each hand I shake, each, each person I cry with is a penguin step. It's, it's one more step towards, and you're right, the tour very quickly I realized, and people are wanting this to be like this Jeff Johnston tour, you know, out selling books, selling tapes, you know, here's your five steps to change your life. You know, no, I, this is a we journey, not a me journey. And the more Chris Cavallos I can meet, and the more I can hear about the Robins and the Stephanies and the Seths and the Prudences of the world, then the person sitting next to us on the airplane is going to say, you know what? I wasn't involved in this conversation, but I was engaged. And now right. I'm going to now I'm going to make a difference. Now I'm going to go back. I'm going to start a nonprofit. I'm going to talk to my kids about these things. And that's really what the tour is all about is like you said perfectly, Chris, getting people to talk together, not right. to tell people what to do. I'm not. I am no expert, man. I mean, I'll be when I'm on the stage at the panel discussion, I'll be the least intelligent person on the stage on these topics. But I certainly have life experiences that qualify me at some level, you right. know. But I think together, I think we can bring I, br I think we can really make a difference, Chris. Um, and then you magnify these conversations. You and I are having this talk for one hour today. Imagine me doing this for. 12 hours a day for 95 days. I mean, you're talking millions of conversations. Right. Yeah. 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 No, no, no question. I'm so excited about this for you and for us and, you know, for the people that you're going to be visiting. I think it's going to be just incredible. So, so what's, what's next? What's next for you, Chris? What, what are your, what are your plans on making a difference? I know you got your foundation and maybe you can spend a, f a few minutes on talking about what your day to day is like in your foundation, but 
Um, what other projects or things that you're thinking of doing, um, you know, to, to help move this needle? We, we uh, are in the process, the early stages. We've been working on it for a year, but it's still the early stages of this documentary, Addiction Has No Favorites. Um, and we're, we're, matter of fact, at the point where we're creating this trailer, um, and we just had a, a three-minute raw uh, they call it a B-roll in the biz um, mm -hmm. that we were looking at just the other night. So we're hoping to tell not just our family story, but the story of right. you know, what was happening out right. there. Stephanie, Robin, myself are, are examples. But as we're talking and learning, there's a thousand other. My, my, in fact, when we brought this to my, my brother, Stephen, uh, in New York just two weeks ago on my dad's 101st birthday. And he said, um, well, you're not the only story. And, and he's right. You know, there's, as we know, there's thousands of other uh, stories. So hopefully we can, uh, even if we can affect one person, one family, um, by telling our story, by sharing our story, that's going to be important to us. But coupled with, with the foundation, what we're hoping for on a long-term basis, because housing for women down here, Jeff, is a big problem. Mm -hmm. And whether you agree with halfway houses or not, if my daughter Stephanie had come out of jail or prison and she didn't have a place to go to with other recovering women, she never would have made it. And yeah. in, in wow, Florida... Of Florida, women only have the a third of the amount of beds as men do. So there's a yeah. tremendous need. Um, so we're hoping that um, when we uh, begin our, our funding process, that that's what we're looking to do on a long-term basis. But not just housing, because they need when they come out of jail, Jeff, they need legal, they need employment, they need yeah. so different things. So um, and we can't be all things to all people, but we want to be engaged in that part of the recovery process for women. So. You bring up such an important aspect of this. It just goes so un, un, you know, uncovered by media and, and even conversations that people have is what do we do with people that, that are released from prison or jail? I, Seth was dead within two months when he got out of prison. He had been in jail what? a number of times. He had all the, all the normal stories that you have with people get kids getting in trouble with this stuff but he actually went into prison for a i think it was a couple year um stint and my lawyer was so good that he got him out early so seth was only in for a couple months or something I, I don't remember the specifics but it was it was a while but within 60 days i remember when the lawyer called and told us and i just turned to my wife and i said you know this is not good news you know it's prison prison was really good for him it was like it was like the army it was like being on the in the service um, but when he got out, he had just, within a short amount of time, he had got pulled back into the streets, you know, got pulled back into that lifestyle. And I think, I think there's this disservice we're doing with people when they get out of jail or prison. We just, we just expect that they're going to get their shit together. That, you know, they're just going to figure it out and we don't provide the support systems, the bridge. I mean, that, that's what, that's what I think he really would have needed with some type of a bridge. And maybe as a parent, I missed an opportunity. Maybe they're out there and I just didn't research it. And, and I have to learn that lesson the hard way, but 
if I certainly had it over again to do, Chris, I would have been much more engaged with his post-prison life right. than I was. I, I gave him money. We bought. We the day he got out, we went to Dick's Sporting Goods and dropped like a thousand dollars on stuff for him. Just made, felt good, you know. Took him out for dinner, handed him some money, and that's that's what I did as a dad. But it's like now I look back and I go, man, dude, you missed such a massive opportunity to really engage in your son's you know quest to make his life better and. You know, I got to take that to my grave. I, I don't play the guilt game at all, but it's certainly, certainly something that if I had the ability to go back in time, that's one thing yeah. that I would really recommend people that if you have children that are incarcerated, you know, very much engage when they yeah. get out. Be be actively engaged. Help them get get going. Get on the right foot. Don't just hand them money and clothes and say good luck. You know. And do you know why that is, Jeff, is because when they go in, the last thing they were doing is they were using. And when they mm -hmm. go inside, there is, for the most part, no rehabilitation. So the right. person who went in is the same person when they come out. So what right. do you expect to do? They right. don't know anything about change. So you better, right. like you're saying, bridge them into a recovery process of some kind or they'll never make it. Or they'll end up, unfortunately, like your poor son. Oh, that's it. Yeah. And, and again, um, look back to, you know, his stuff started at 16 with being prescribed Adderall. That's when it all started. So it's like, you know, when you take somebody's death and then you unwind it and mm. you go back to try to, you know, obviously the middle is all similar. It's all just chaos and hell and lying and deception and all these bad things. And then you, but you go to where it kind of started. What was the spark? And normally it's it's the age of first use, I think, is 14 in this country. And for Seth, it was 16. And for you, it was 14. Um, you know, for me, I'd have to say my first beer was probably eighth or ninth grade, which is right around the same age. Uh, but when you peel it back, the endings are all, you know, different, but the beginnings are all real similar. Right. They really are. They, it's yeah. that first beer, the first vape, the first Percocet you took out of your mom's medicine cabinet or the first, you know, Adderall that you tried, you know, the beginnings are all so similar, but the endings, you know, I guess the, the act of death is, is similar from that regards, but how it kind of ended that way. I don't know. I, I, I think to myself, and I, I'm sure you do this too, is that the fact that this was so preventable and so predictable simultaneously is what makes it so punishing, you right. know, so difficult, so difficult to comprehend is how, could this have happened under my watch? You know, right. I, I was, I was the dad. I was the, the, the male in the house. You know, I was the father. I, I'm, I'm the stoic person. I'm the businessman, but this all happened under my watch, you know, and if it can happen under my watch, Chris, it could happen under anybody's watch. You, you can't. And my daughter, uh, said this to me the other day, cause I brought up again, the text from Stephanie, dad, I'm dying. I don't want to live anymore. And I didn't get the text. And she oh, said, you know, and the reality is she could have died that night, the next yeah, night, right. later, inevitable. And you're not yeah. stronger, more powerful than with the good Lord has mm -hmm. already made the decision. So it doesn't help good us point. going back. So we can, we can move this needle forward, though. There's no question. We can. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I, I super enjoyed our conversation. This is one of the fastest hours that we've had on the show um, and you and I just met, we have a lot to share. And I think the cumulative effect of storytelling, um, attracts people to the light, so to stay. And right. the light is hope. The light is in for inspiration. The light is connectivity. Um, 
you know, goodwill, fellowship. Those are all things that keep us above ground, at least keeps me above ground for the time being, you know, having the ability to do what I do. People say, well, Jeff, you know, how do you do it? How do you write a book? How do you do all this stuff? How do you do your podcast? I said, it's easy, man. Cause I love what I, I love helping people. I really get a sense of accomplishment when I, when this podcast ends, I'm going to have something that happens inside of me that feels so good that it can't, I can't get that from a drug. There right. is, you know, I've never done drugs. So you could probably say, well, Jeff, you've never done this. So you don't know what you're talking about. There is no drug that can get me higher than what I do every day. There just isn't, there isn't. And it's a natural high and, and, and I'm not hung over. You're right. You know? I've, experienced both so i can tell you it's true <laughs> <laughs> that's what i said i haven't experienced both you got me on that man but hey listen um this has been great i love you like a brother i really appreciate what you're doing to help out with the tour um i'm sure you and i have a lot more conversations but how can people reach you how can they reach your foundation uh what's the easiest way to get a hold of chris cavallo foundation.org r-o-b-i-n foundation.org just text me, email me, call me, whatever. And we'll have Thanks. links to all your uh, information on this on this post as well. So listen, man, great speaking with you. And um, keep doing what you're doing. And of course, always keep living undeterred. All right, man? All right. Stay in the fight. Take care, brother. God bless. Take care.